So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to a couple of places. Uh, first of all, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then also to Jeremiah 29. I know that you see Matthew up there. Hey, if you want to turn there too, you go for it. If you have that many ribbons in your Bible or things on hand, you just go for it, okay? We're going to be in a lot of places today, but I call it an audible, and I'd rather you see with your own eyes Jeremiah 29 if you can get there, okay? Uh, I will provide plenty of time. We're not, we're not going to go to Jeremiah for a long time uh, this morning, but we're going to get to 1 Corinthians here in just a few moments. Uh, we will do Ephesians first. Like I said, we're going to be all over the place. In fact, we're going to read the whole Bible by the time we leave this morning, all right? Would that be a problem to anybody? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> you know, this is our, our final week in, a, in this series that we're calling Core Commitments. Uh, and as I've said each week, I think that uh, we call these core commitments. There's a lot of doctrines that we could talk about, a lot more things that are really important for, for what it means to be a Christian. But I'm suggesting to you that there are a lot more to, the, to the, the, what it means to be a Christian, live the Christian life, than these eight things. But there certainly isn't less. And so this week, our final week, is on service. Uh, now, you could say it's giving part two. Last week, we looked at giving from a financial standpoint. But I would suggest that service is giving from a personal standpoint. It's of your time and your resources, of your energy, of yourself. And certainly, we gave a lot of time to finances last week, but I want to look specifically about what it means to live a lifestyle of service. We have a problem that sometimes we see this, that who we are in our culture sort of bleeds into how we look at things in the church. So what I mean by that is that we have this problem where we often base our roles in whatever roles that you may play in, in your life as a worker, as a student, as a parent, whatever it may be. We look at our roles and we base our roles on our small picture tasks instead of our big picture motives and our goals. For example, if you work in healthcare, your role isn't just to fill out paperwork and take patients' vitals. It's to represent core values, to build a good reputation for the entity that you represent, to create an environment in which needs are met and patients' health is restored and, and so forth and so on. Or maybe you're a teacher. Your role isn't just to lecture and grade tests and assign homework. That strips it of really what the, the role is, which is to educate children and mold minds and equip them for their future. Or maybe your role as a mom or a dad or as a spouse. As a mom and dad, your role isn't just to take out the trash, mow the grass, pick up toys, and make sure that your kids don't go hungry. Those are little small picture tasks, but your role is bigger than that. It's to love your family, to serve your family, and to lead your family, ultimately, to love Jesus. Your big picture love for them then produces day-to-day -day manifestations of that love. But oftentimes, to see the purpose of the roles that we play in the workplace or the home, we need to look at the bigger picture beyond the tasks in the small and look greater to the motives and the purpose of those tasks. And I'm going to suggest to you that the same is true of our role in the church. Many roles that we could fill in the church, but what is the big picture? And that's what we're going to look at today. The big picture of what it means to give and live a life of service. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4, and you'll see it on the screen behind me. And I, don't, I just don't have time for it to go to every single passage, but you can try if you want to, but I'm going to go quick. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Listen to this when it talks about what is motivating these things. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, you see all the roles, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For, here's the big picture, building up the body of Christ. Then later in verse 15, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Listen, when each part is working properly, listen for the big picture here, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, don't miss this last part, in love. So that doesn't focus on the little tasks. He does. He says, you have the apostles and prophets, you have all these roles, big picture. Each part is working properly to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It is the design and example of our God that love is manifested not in me first, my needs first, but rather it's manifested in you first, your needs first. That's why John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone, what? Lay down his life, his needs, for his friends. The word Christian literally means what? Little Christ, right? If that's true of Jesus, he would, he would lay himself down. That's what service means. Then what do you think that we're called to do? To lay down our needs and say, you first. You guys first. I'm, I'm here to build you up. If that's true, Romans 8, 29, that we should be conformed into his image, then your role within this building, within this body, and beyond it is not just to come and be fed, but rather to come, be fed, and to serve, to be part of the big picture, which is to build itself up, build the body, build those around you up in love. Let's look at another passage in Matthew chapter 20, 25 through 28. This is when James and John, two brothers, they're kind of disputing. They're like, well, Jesus, what's going to be my role in eternity? What's my role in the kingdom? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? Are we going to have special positions because we're your boys in this life? And Jesus responds to them and says, this is Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, as they're questioning about rulership, he says, you know what the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them? It shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. They go low to be high. Even, verse 28, as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, example, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's why I say that. And this is so important for us. As focused as Jesus was on personal godliness, he was, right? He was God, in fact. And as focused as he was on personal, internal godliness, he was just as much focused on interpersonal godliness, on service, not on domineering, internal godliness, but it had manifestations in the external, in the interpersonal. He focused on the personal, things like prayer, scripture, the godliness of the knots, as I'll say, do not have other gods before me, do not lie, do not steal, do not so forth and so on. He focused on those things, the personal godliness, but so much on the interpersonal, on the doing, on the serving. What did he do? He fed, he taught, he healed, he washed feet, he thanked, he comforted, he encouraged, he greeted, he gave generously, he forgave graciously, he prayed for others, he placed himself below others, even his enemies, when he washed Judas's feet and laid him at the table. That's not just personal godliness. That's interpersonal godliness. It's service. And we have a tendency to give great effort to personal godliness, to things like prayer and scripture or the godliness of the knots, being a moral person. But what do we give to interpersonal godliness? Are we really taking after Jesus if we lack one or the other? I would suggest no. And so this core commitment is just that. 
I think that it is core. Because just like we talked about last week, the spirit of giving, that God has the spirit of giving, I think that God also has the spirit of service. If not, Jesus would not have come to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we lack that, you lack a large part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you should have an interpersonal relationship with his church, and I'm going to suggest to you with the world as well. And so those are the two things that I'm going to leave you with today if you're taking notes. And there's going to be more. I would suggest you, to, to, if you're writing things down, to, to write down more than these, just these two things. But this is just, I wanted to make it simple, okay? Number one is that sort of what this interpersonal Christian living looks like is that it has manifestation within the local church. Uh, within the local church. So this gathering, this fellowship of believers, we're to live interpersonal lives of service to one another. And there are opportunities for service around us in this local gathering, right, which we're going to talk about. Because I spent an entire Sunday on this, I'm not going to say much on it, but I'll reiterate this, and that is that God calls every Christian to link arms with a local church to plug in. He calls zero Christians to live life apart from the local church. And we could talk about a lot of evidences for that. I've already done that, so I'm not going to do that other than to just say God wants you to be part of a church, not just to be an attender, but to link arms and be part of the body. That passage in Ephesians is one of the countless examples of evidences of that. That last verse in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 that I sort of uh, singled out, or rather verse 16 that I singled out, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint which it is equipped, it says, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Listen, very simply, you can't do that <laughs> You can't build up one another in love if you aren't regularly gathering and giving others, hear this, jurisdiction to correct and to encourage you and doing the same thing for other people. You can't build up one another in love if you're not with the people that you're supposed to be building up one another in love, right? That's obvious. Clearly, we see an instruction here. God doesn't singularly grow you. We do it together to build up the body. And I used an analogy for this, talking about a charcoal grill, right? The, the, those pieces of charcoal, you have to bring them together and ignite them, and what happens? They can do a lot together, right? But if you take one of those pieces and separate it from the whole, is it very useful? No, it, it burns out, and it cools, and it can do nothing. It is lifeless and vain. It, it has no purpose, right? But if you bring it in, it can accomplish much. And they stir up one another, the charcoal does, and, and heats one another. How do we do this as the church? Well, it's those 59 one another instructions that I talked about in that gathering sermon. You remember that? Talking about loving one another, encouraging one another, correcting one another, instructing one another, give, forgiving one another, serving one another. So I'm not going to go into all that again, but I will bring that up to the table and say the way that we are to do that is by the gifting of the Spirit of God that engages and occupies your heart. Word for that, the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts is how we do that. To engage the gifting of the Spirit of God. And this was something that was very familiar in the early church. In fact, Brother Chris, just a minute ago, read from Romans 12, which is a great example of that. I'm gonna read a different passage. In fact, I had that one in my notes, and I was like, I'm just gonna leave it out for the sake of time. You're welcome. 1 Corinthians 12, I wanna read this. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. Check this out. Talking about the equipping of the Spirit for the benefit of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11 says, Now, there are varieties of gifts. So, Spirit can do a lot of things in different people. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, don't miss that, to each, each one, each person, each believer, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for, don't miss this, the common good, meaning the collective. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another by the uh, faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, this is very important. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. A bit of context. In the church of Corinth, Corinth was, uh, it was a port city, and you had a lot of foreigners come in, and they loved to go the way that we love football, and yesterday was a great day, wasn't it? I love football. So, resumption of the, the glory of God on Saturdays, right? So, the way that we love football that way, Corinth would go and listen to orators, speakers, and they would go, and they would attend these, these sort of, we would see them as seminars or conferences where you have these people with a lot of eloquence and wisdom, and they would speak. Corinth loved that. They saw these guys as sort of itinerary uh, celebrity speakers, and so they would love to hear the wisdom of men, and so they really had an obsession with speaking. Now, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, they had an unhealthy obsession with the speaking gifts, specifically tongues, which he talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. That's a sermon for another day. But they really loved the speaking gifts, gifts of prophecy and gifts of teaching, and they loved the showy, the big and demonstrative and so Paul steps in and says that the emphasis is not on the gift. He says the Spirit gives this way and this way and this way and this way, which we're going to read a little bit more. He says don't focus on all the different types of what you have and what you do not have. The emphasis, some have this one, some have that one. It's not the emphasis. The emphasis is twofold. One, the emphasis is, back in verse 7, for the common good. And I mentioned it's, emphasis there is not on good. Emphasis is on common, meaning collective, meaning together. It's used for the good of the body. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Notice it doesn't say use it to pat yourself on the back. Right? The gifting of the Spirit is not just for puffing oneself up, which is what Corinth was doing. It is so that you can bless the people in and around your life. Your gift is not for your ego, but for their growth, their building up. He then continues that part and says, as good stewards of God, God's varied grace. You know, in the same vein as giving of our finances that God has given us, we are to give of the spiritual gift that God has given us. Listen, for the benefit and the growth of the body. I grew up playing a lot of basketball. Don't laugh. It's a serious statement, all right? I love basketball. I used to play all the time. I used to be a lot thinner because I played all the time. And um, I'm not saying I was great, but I love doing that. And when I went to Alabama, I'm not going to say anything. I know you want me to, but I'm not going to say anything. When I went to Alabama, I went to the rec center all the time. I played a lot of basketball, and my grades suffered for a while because of that. But I figured it out and matured a little bit over time. But I played a lot of basketball, and there were these guys sometimes that would bring their own ball, bring their own basketball, and it would be a really nice basketball. And so the ones at the rec center were usually not very good, and they would buy some, but they get used so much that they wear down really quickly. But then once in a while, somebody would show up with their own ball, and they would bring it, and everybody got kind of excited. It was like, oh, we, we're playing with a good ball today. And so sometimes the guys would, would let them use the ball, and we'd play with that ball for four hours. But sometimes you'd have the guy that shows up. You know what I'm about to say, right? You'd have the guy that shows up, 
and when he gets on the court, we can use the ball, and then his team gets thumped, and then he takes the ball and goes and sits down, and he's like, it's my ball. <laughs> it's like, you're a baby, you know? So he takes his ball, and so if his team loses, then he doesn't share that. And I know that's silly, and we, we kind of shake our heads at that, but when you come to church only to fill your empty tank and then head for the exits, you are keeping the body from the gift that God has given you for their benefit. That, that ball, if it was sweet because it was a benefit to others, but it defeated the purpose if that person hoarded that and said, this is for my benefit, not for yours. And we scoff at that and say, how ridiculous, what a poor attitude. But guys, the Spirit of God has given you a gift. If you only come here and then bounce, you, you head to the exits, before you get an opportunity to really share and, and grow one another and do things for the benefit of others, you're like the kid that shows up and loses and pouts his way home and hoards the gift. It doesn't honor the Lord. That's not why he gave you the gift that he has given you. You've received a gift to build up one another for the common good. And you may be thinking, well, I can't teach, and I'm, I'm not going to be a preacher, and uh, I don't have what it takes to be a deacon. What kind of gifts do I have? Do you hear what? You sound just like Corinth when you think that way. As they said, I don't have the showy. And what Paul is about to do, he's about to just unload on them and say, it's not about the showy. God has given you, you, your gifting. And yes, even you, the person that feels maybe small in this way, God can do amazing things because he has given you not, not your power, his power. And I promise you, you can benefit the body. Which is kind of the next thing. He says, not only for the common good, but, but also that everyone is different. And sort of, if, if number one is the common good, number two would be that everyone is different. Look at verse 11 in, in 1 Corinthians 12. We just kind of read it. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one differently, right, as he wills. Again, as they were obsessed with the, the, uh, the speaking or the showy gifts, he says, everybody's different. You don't have all these things that everybody else has. Look down to verse 17 through 21. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where'd be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where'd be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I'm going to read one more verse. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. This is so true of your body, right? You ever have a toothache or, or some jaw pain? I think mouth pain, it, it absolutely takes the cake on what pain is realized, right? I had some tooth pain one time, and it was because they had shaved it, it uh, was unbalanced. And I was just thinking, why does my mouth hurt so bad? It was excruciating. I couldn't sleep. I had a massive headache. And guess what? I never in my life before that moment thought about how indispensable that tooth was. But when it wasn't working the right way, I noticed it, and it shut down my whole body. This is what Paul is saying. You may seem and feel indispensable. You are valuable to your church because you have a valuable spirit working in you. It's a powerful working in you. You may feel indispensable. God's made you special. He's made you differently than he's made me. He goes on. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> oh, and by the way, the analogy he's saying is, is clear. It's like, it'd be really weird if a, a body was made up of nothing but eyes or nothing but hands. Where would you be able to, you couldn't move around. I mean, you see the analogy that he's trying to build here. Look at verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Notice the commonality, the collectiveness of this, uh, 29. 
Looking down at verse 29. Are all apostles? Answer is obviously no. Are all prophets? Again, a redundant no. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret it? Obviously, the answer to all those questions is no. Verse 31, he answers, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And when he says that, I want to read the report in just a second. When he says the higher gifts, he's not talking about the showy. He's talking about what he finishes this sentence with. He says, and I will show you still the more excellent way. Chapter 13 then rolls in, and you may be familiar with chapter 13. The higher gifts are not the big and showy. The higher gifts are the ones that build up the body the best. The ones that are motivated by a spirit of love. That's what he says. Focus is not on your specific giftedness, but rather how you use it. And that's what he says. I will show you a still more excellent way, which is what I titled today's message. And I think this is really pertinent. The love of chapter 13, which we're going to look at now in verses 1 through 3. Check it out. If I speak in the tongues of men, okay, this is the big and showy. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... He says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's pointless, too. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, he says, I am nothing. Then finally in verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. The gift is far less important than the spirit with which it is used. The love of chapter 13 is the more excellent way of how to best use your spiritual gift, whatever it may be. And chapter 13 is the love chapter, right? It's one that you may hear when it's referred to in in a a wedding ceremony. But I'm going to suggest to you, listen, and it's very obvious now that you read it in context, this love chapter isn't primarily about marriage. It's not about your marriage. It's not about how you live out there. The context is this love chapter is about how we do things in this gathering. Your gifting is worthless, if its value is not grounded in the spirit of love. When you come to church, this is to be your attitude, verses four through seven. Love is patient and kind. This is how you're supposed to use your gift. It's patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Hear that one? It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, if there was one thing, one little section of Scripture that we could really say, I'm going to be about that when I gather with my people, that's the one. That's the one. That's what Paul is saying. You can come with all your showy gifts. You can come with your small, your large. If they are not grounded in that right there, they're vain and they're pointless. This is the spirit that binds us. As much as you are here to worship through hearing the word, through singing of praise songs, you are here to worship through service grounded in love. Service is the natural outflow of love for one another and love for the church. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, that ransom was motivated by love. Your service to one another is motivated not by obligation. It's not motivated by instruction. Your service to one another is motivated by the love of the Spirit of God within you. 
and it happens within the church. And it can't happen apart from the church. Part of it has to happen here. But it does go, it leaves the doors, if you want to say it that way. It leaves this gathering. And that's the second thing I want you guys to see today. Yes, it happens within the church. Yes, we can see interpersonal service happen here, this Christian living, but it goes beyond the local church as well. Beyond the local church. The gathering of believers is, is not the only time and place that we are called to take up a lifestyle of service for the good of those around us. As Jesus came not to be served but to serve, so we do so in the world that is only our temporary home. We have a great example and instruction of what this looks like in the Old Testament, which is the one I want you to see now in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, and really the section of verses that I'm going to look at are verses 1 through 13, but uh, not all of them. Okay, so we're going to kind of jump just for the sake of time. Verse 1 starts, though, it says, uh, and again, think about what I want you to keep in your mind here is that these are believers or, or, or God-fearers that are, that are not in their permanent dwelling place. Okay, they're away, they're exiles. Look at the instruction. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. Later on, verse 1, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So they're away from home, these guys that are receiving this letter. Verse 4 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, it's an important word, whom I have sent to eg into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, verse 5, very important, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. I'm going to comment on these verses in just a moment. Verse 6 says, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Verse 10 then says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's the promised land that God originally gave them, Israel. Verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's three things that I want you to see just in this little passage here. Number one, when it comes to them being away from home, God's instruction to them is to live there, to settle there which is what we see in verse 5 when he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Stay there, reside there, flourish there. It would have been easy for these exiles to be considering themselves as nomads or recluses, to become embittered and dissatisfied, but God's instruction is clear. Settle there, live there, be there. It sort of echoes what we see in the New Testament as James 1 and 1 Peter 1 refers to the church as exiles, right? The word exiles is maybe a little confusing. Maybe a different way to understand that is as resident aliens, meaning foreigners, but those that reside there. That's what it means to be an exile of the kingdom of God, is that this is not our home, and yet this is where we are to take up residence as ambassadors of Christ, to live here, but belong elsewhere. But as ambassadors, represent your eternal dwelling place well. Secondly, not just live and settle there, he wants them also to re respectfully resist there. And what I mean by that is, don't assimilate with the culture. In verses 10 through 13 of what we just read, God reminds them of who they really belong to. He says, 
verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare, not to do evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, come and pray to me. I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, Babylon was pagan. It was evil. Evil surrounded them. It was a godless culture for God-fearers. Does that sound familiar? It was a godless culture. Evil surrounded them, and yet they were called to be God-fearers. That should sound just a little bit relevant to where we are today. They could reside there without belonging there. It could be, they could be surrounded by the world while remembering who they ultimately belong to. Hebrews 13, 14 says this better than I just did. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. God's instruction to them is to live there, be an ambassador there, but remember where home is. Full circle, we're going to get there now. The way that they could do that, the way that they and we ambassador well, is to take up the attitude of our King, our God, which is an attitude of not being served, but serving. Not just here, but out there. And that's what Israel was called to when they were away from their permanent dwelling place. So as they were called to live and settle there, as they were called to respectfully resist there, they were also called to sacrificially love and serve there. We see this in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord, don't miss this, on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, what he says here is to seek the good things for the city. Seek the welfare. Its inhabitants, that, listen, they would have sound, that would have sounded absolutely absurd to Jewish people. And here's why. Because Babylonians, not too long ago, had captured them. They'd likely killed their friends. They'd taken their possessions. And most importantly, they hated their God. And Jeremiah says, pray for them. Seek their welfare. Our word welfare, your, your translation may say something different. That word really doesn't capture what an amazing statement it is to pray for their welfare. The Hebrew word there is of great weight. It's the word shalom. Pray for their peace, for their prosperity. Pray for their divine favor for your enemies. It's an Old Testament principle that we're more accustomed to seeing Jesus echo in the New Testament. Maybe take on a little bit more relevancy here for you. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where's Jesus going here? You know. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, here's the full circle, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen. God shows grace and love to the world. We're his ambassadors. If God didn't show grace and mercy to the world that resists him, you would have never come to faith in Jesus. Our example is to take up the same love, the same service, not just in our church, but in our world. Same chapter, Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, you are the light of the world. Jesus said the same thing about himself. Jesus says that about his church. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, it says. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And what, th- what that means is people can know God is there and that God cares for them as God's people show them that. It's your job to point people to the God who loves them and cares for them, to tend to their needs, not just live a lifestyle of service here in this gathering, but live a lifestyle of service out as we go, and to serve in two ways. Number one, to serve with action, to meet the people's needs around you. Live a lifestyle of service with the people in your life. Look for ways that you can swim against the current of selfishness in our culture. Pick up trash that doesn't belong to you. Tip generously, regardless of how good the service was. Compliment others frequently and sincerely. Foster a relationship of generosity with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Sacrifice your time to make a lasting investment of serving others. That's what Jesus did. To serve with action, but also to serve with rescue. You may think, I can't rescue people. Oh, but you can, because we are pointing to the rescuer. When we serve with rescue, we don't just meet the benevolence needs, not just the hungry bellies and the need for shelter. Guys, we have a message that meets the greatest need that this world will ever have. The gospel, the good news of a suffering servant, Savior, who died to ransom a world that resisted him. That's our message. And it's a spiritual gift of another sort. That gift of the Spirit is found in a couple of places that I'll read, Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Luke 24, 47-49, Jesus is giving a similar instruction. He says, And the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is why I say that. Listen, the Spirit of God equips and mobilizes for the outpouring of service. You take the Spirit of God who equips and mobilizes you to go and live service out there by meeting physical needs, but by meeting the greatest spiritual need that this world will ever have, salvation. And you can do that on your way as you go. Look for needs and opportunities that you can serve the people in your life. And when they ask, why? Why'd you pick up that piece of trash? It doesn't belong to you. I'm just trying to live a lifestyle of service. That's what Jesus did. You see, there are ways really casually to point people to Jesus on the go. I heard a quote one time that said, what did it say? Make disciples, no, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. I hear that sentiment, which is that we can preach the gospel with acts of love and grace and mercy and, and service. But I think it's backwards. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use action. Because the best thing that we can give people is not a meal, it is the bread of life. And both are important. But if we only are meeting physical needs, we are selling short what God has sent us to do. I mentioned a few weeks ago 
that uh, I think it was the second week uh, on going, our, our mission uh, in this core commitment series, and that we were going to look for opportunities to go and do that, to live on mission. And, and last week we had two IMB missionaries. Was that awesome or what? Oh, yeah. It was amazing to hear the IMB missionaries that came and share their experience. And I don't know about you, but, I mean, if you were listening, there should have been some stirring there, okay? If the Spirit of God was, I know that he was pounding, were you ready to, to, and willing to listen? And so that, uh, coupled with what I said a few weeks ago, right now we're planning to go on a mission trip in 2023, in June of 2023. And the plan, listen, you may have heard them talk about the Middle East, and to be honest with you, I'm very strongly considering that being a task that we can take up and send a team there in the next few years. But the immediate need that I want to see us go and see about is in Africa. And you may think, whoa, buddy, that is a long way. How about we try some Central America action? Listen, man, I hear that. And that is a, you heard them say this, that it is a well-plowed ground, right? And that doesn't minimize the need. The gospel needs to go to Central America. But I have a network and a relationship in a little region cut out of South Africa, the country South Africa, called Eswatini. Uh, Swaziland is the name that it used to go by. There's a care point there, an orphanage. It's the the highest rate of HIV and AIDS population in Africa. Because of that, there is virtually no middle, uh, I won't say middle class, but I mean middle generation. You have people that are eight, and you got people that are 80. And the middle ground is not really there, which means you have a lot of fatherless and motherless homes. And grandmothers are usually the caretakers for children. There's a care point over there that I've been to uh, that, that Sam has been to a few years ago, and I want to send a team to, to go and see about that mission. We're going to have information about that at an interest meeting. If you're at any, any level of interest in that, then we're going to do that probably next week, but stay tuned, and I'm going to give you some information about that. But guys, this is simply your pastor saying, I want to take seriously the call to take the gospel and take service to the world around us. We could go here, we could go there. What about this? What about that? Those needs are all there. But I think that God has led on our hearts to go to this place. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to me out in the back. But listen, that doesn't minimize the need right here in our backyard. You don't have to go to Africa to take the good news of the gospel to this world. Amen? Right here in Lauderdale County, right in your workplace, right in your classroom, be an ambassador of Christ. Look for opportunities to tell the truth, to witness. That's what it means to live a lifestyle of service. Out there, and in here. I'll say this. Service is not the prerequisite for joining this body of believers called fellowship. It's not a prerequisite, but it is the expected fruit of all believers who are connected to the vine, and we must be an example of that. You may think to yourself, as we're talking about this, and say, man, I don't even know where I would fit. I really don't have much of a gift I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm really not even that smart, so I don't even know what, what I would do. I can't, definitely can't teach a class. What am I supposed to do? If that's you, and you're confused, and don't know, how do I identify my gift? Listen, I'll just say this. We tend to overcomplicate this question, and you don't even have to put a label on it. We overcomplicate it, and what I'll say is this. Don't overcomplicate it. Ask yourself this question. In what way do you think that you can, one, point people to Jesus, and two, show your brothers and sisters that they are loved. That's your job when we gather. To point people to Jesus in whatever act that you can and to show people that they are loved as well. 
Your brothers and sisters can help you see it. In fact, I hope that they will and point out ways that you can be using your gift. The Spirit may lay it on your heart and give you a certain peace in a certain direction. But often the discovery of gifts becomes more clear in the doing. As we serve in various roles, we learn what, are good, what we're good at and what we have a heart for. Service, once again I'll say this, is the natural outflow of love for one another and love for the church. Love is the motivation of living a life of service. Not putting your name on a dotted line and saying, yeah, I guess I'll do that. There's a need there. You serve when you love your church. You serve when you love your Lord. You serve when you love your brothers and sisters. And so you may be thinking, man, I hate serving in the nursery. I hate doing that. Wherever you may serve, it is, it is less about the task, small picture, and more about the mission, building up the church. Those people that go and love on our kids in the nursery, and maybe you need to be one of them, those people that go and love on our kids in the nursery, they do so so that their moms and dads can be in here gleaning a blessing. And they need more of them, especially on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, these parents are gonna be in there often, once a month, I think. Their own, they're gonna be in there loving on their own kids because we have a, sh a shortage of, of servants that are willing to step up to the plate and say, I can do this. And the more servants we have, say in the nursery or anywhere else, the less of a demand it will be on the individuals that choose to do it. The graphic behind me selects a few of those areas of service, not just the nursery, but you can be a greeter. If you have a passion for that and just say, you know what, I can just talk to people and encourage them. That's a great way for you to plug in. We have some greeters, but we need more. In fact, you don't have to just be a greeter on the list to be a greeter on a Sunday. Stand out there and just say hello to people when they come in the door. You don't have to be on the list to do that. That's a way that you can love and encourage and bless the people that come in our doors. I've had so many people tell me, you wouldn't believe this, that come to me and say, yeah, we tried this church over here, but we went and no one even spoke to us, and so we just, we didn't really feel like we were wanted there. Guys, God forbid fellowship be a place where that happens. If there's a bare minimum of what we can do is that we can see someone that we don't know and say, hey, I don't know your name. Hey, <laughs> I'm glad that you're here. And they may say, dude, I've been going here for like 20 months. You say, okay, well, Sorry I didn't meet you sooner, but I'm glad to know you now. It's only awkward if you make it awkward. That's not awkward. That's saying, yeah, I hate that I'm taking this long to say hey, but I, I, really, I felt like I needed to, so I hate that I don't know your name, and I'm glad I do now. I'm so-and-so. See how easy that is? Don't overcomplicate that. Just bless each other. It's not just for the outgoing. It's for the church. Or maybe you're skilled in media, and you can step back there and help those guys out in the booth that are working on audio or, or putting slides on the screen or, or our Facebook broadcast, well, you may say, well, it's full back there. Okay, so give them a break. They're back there every Sunday, man. If that's something you can do, bring it to somebody and say, I think I can be able to help with that. We need more servants. Or children's church. Our kids are back there being loved on right now so that you can be here in a quiet-ish environment and learn and glean from God's word. But they need more servants. You know why? So that they can come in here and be part of that blessing. If you can do that, the more volunteers we have, it will bless others to be able to be part of worship. Or maybe you can serve in the kitchen. We have a great kitchen staff. They're not paid, they're volunteers. But they show up Wednesday after Wednesday and serve a meal so that your family can be fed physically and spiritually. Praise God for that. But we could use more volunteers to do that. Or maybe your profession or your hobby can overlap with periodic needs here. You know, this pulpit was built by somebody here. 
They just saw a need and said, I can do that. So they serve the church in this way. It is a pretty awesome pulpit, is it not? So I think it's pretty cool. This church was decorated by our own. This church building, I should say. This church building is cleaned by our own. The audio and video was wired by our own. And I know in years and years past, this church building and this church body would not be here without God's impression upon the hearts of servants of fellowship who came long before the people in this room. We stand on the shoulders of giants. People willing to step up to the plate and serve for the building up of the body. If you have a skill or even just a heart for a specific thing, tell someone. Tell me. Write it on the little connection card. Drop it in that thing so that I'll see it. Email me. Do something. Serve the body. Guys, our church is growing in number like crazy. You know that? Just look around. You're like, I don't know that person. Are they a guest? No, they've been here three years. Our church is growing like crazy, and I know that you see that. We're about to baptize another. We do this from time to time. Because our church is growing in number like crazy. But listen, if we are a church of only consumers, we will grow in number only. If this is a church of consumers only, we will grow only in number. We will not grow. Not in what matters. You were not grafted into this body of believers to consume a blessing every Sunday without being a distributor of that blessing. You were made for a more excellent way. And it may be uncomfortable to begin serving. It may cause you to step out on faith and be a little out of your comfort zone, but you will never regret going low that another person may be lifted up, ever. I debated saying this because it totally is, is whiplash for the direction of the message, but I think it needs to be said as we talk about service. Your marriage, if you're married, this is for you. Every marriage that has ever struggled or failed or is about to fail has done so because one or both spouses say, my needs first. Every marriage that has ever failed or is about to or that just struggles in general does so because one or both spouses say, my needs first. Guys, the most Christ-like thing you can do in your marriage is to be a servant to your spouse. Jesus was a servant to his bride. His bride is called to be a servant to him. And you will never be perfect at it. Only Jesus was. But if your marriage today is struggling, if you see cracks in the concrete, because of a pattern of you saying, or they saying, don't focus on them right now. Because of a pattern of you saying me first, my needs first. I want you to just grab their hand right now and renew silently even if you have to, the commitment to one another and say, we're gonna serve one another and I'm committing to you right now to serve you. I know that there are no perfect marriages in this room. I know that. And you know better than to say that yours is above it. When we talk about service, I cannot let this message go by without saying every marriage that has ever failed has begun with someone saying, my needs first. Commit to one another to say, I'm gonna serve you. Not perfectly, but I'm gonna make that my effort 
Philippians 2, 4, and 5, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Guys, we're not called to any lifestyle that God has not perfectly exemplified. We serve because he first served us, Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, think of his life as a ransom for many. Listen, one more thing. Jesus came saying, your needs first. Will you say the same?